Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello everyone. Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. I'm Kat Caldwell and today it is May 26th, 2022. And this episode will be going out the very last week of May on Memorial Day. I always wonder if it's a good idea to put something out on Memorial Day, but Monday is our day to drop, so there you have it. Before we get into the show, I have a wonderful guest for you. I'm so excited. I have Alka Joshi with me. I'm really, really excited for you guys to hear her interview. She wrote The Henna Artist, among some other books. I'm excited for her to tell you guys about how she started writing and how she got the idea for The Henna Artist. And she she mentioned something in there that oh, we'll get into it in just a second. I'm very excited, as you can tell. I do want to let you guys know that because I will be going to Spain as I do every summer with my kids for them to hang out with their grandma, these little intros where we get to chat and I get to catch up with you on what's going on in my life will be on hold for the month of July. So I won't be able to drag all of my recording stuff over there. They are very strict these days on your luggage. They're making everyone pay extra, which oh, really irks me. They should just put it in my already very expensive ticket, but that's okay. We won't complain about that anymore. So all of July, the episodes will just have a sort of pre-recorded um, intro for y'all. And if you want to see pictures of Spain or my life over there with my second family, my lovely Spanish family, you should follow me on Instagram because that's where I post most of my pictures. And I love posting my travel pictures. Somebody told me that I should have a whole different Instagram for that. And that, that's just a lot. <laughs> so you can follow me, author on Instagram. And that is probably it. I probably, you should follow pencils and lipstick all spelled out on Instagram as well to know what you've missed, to answer my questions that I put out there. Um, just, you know, follow me, follow the podcast, support the podcast. But if you want to see the pictures, they will be at catcaldwell.author. But until then, through the month of June, I will be letting you guys know what is going on. So before we could do that, if you could like and subscribe to the podcast, share it with anybody that you know likes writing or likes to listen to writers talk about their writing. <laughs> if you know another creative who might like the podcast, it really helps. If you like the show, if you put a review in there, you never know, I might highlight the review on my Instagram or on Twitter. I really appreciate you all listening. It's amazing to see what countries you guys come from. I would love to visit all of them one day. But this year, all I have planned for the rest of the year 
is visiting family in Spain. We have a new baby coming in Spain, so we'll probably get two visits in. I would love to see a new country every year, but might not happen this year. I don't know. Now that I'm talking about it and thinking about it, <laughs> maybe I should figure something out. Anyway, what is writing coming to these days? I am two-thirds of the way done with this book. And to be honest with y'all, it has, you know, it's the end of school. We all know that the news and the world is a mess. And besides that, my own small world is full of testing and end of the year projects and, you know, realizing that we have to get things ready for traveling and, you know, all these, all this little stuff. My husband's very busy at his job. The dog is limping and you know, there's always something going on. And while there's always something going on, the changes in seasons are always what gets me. I, I spent some time, you know, sitting back and realizing when is it that I get mostly overwhelmed? And it's when there's like this change and shift within the family. And sometimes I can come with travel. Sometimes I can come with school shifting. It's not necessarily the season shift. It's the, like all the things, you know, the, the seasons of stuff, you know, finishing dance and tennis and volleyball and getting all those things in, you know, and the, the social things that we have to do as my kids get older. And it really drains me of creativity because it overwhelms me. I, I'm always checking my calendar to make sure we're not missing something. My email, did I miss something? I mean, the other day I missed the email that there was no tennis. You know, so we showed up and nobody's there. Completely my fault. Um, you know, so that I always feel kind of on edge and just busy. And that really does a number on my creativity. It really does a number on like, where am I going with this? You know, what, where is this story going? And what happens is instead of just relaxing into the story, I start overanalyzing and overthinking it. You know, whether it's the book or the short story that I'm trying to work on, I honestly haven't, haven't been able to work on a short story. I lost my journal. <laughs> I did find it, but you know, just like all these little things seem to be sucking the creativity out of me. And so I picked up Steel Like an Artist the other day and read it within a day. It's not a difficult book <laughs> at all, but it's a fun little book. And it's it infuses you again with what creativity is. It, it sort of brings you back to the beginning, right? And And it's not things that are new to us. It's not anything that we don't know. But I think that we can get caught up in the, let's get this done. I need to move on to the next thing. To be honest and fair to ourselves as writers, it's a business and it's something that we want to see grow in a business sort of way. And that means sales of books, which means money. You know, that's just kind of how we measure things these days. So if you don't, you know, get the next book out, then of course you only have so many books to be telling people about. And as we all know, this theory of, you know, you start making 50K at 20 books, that's a bit 
that, that that's a lot for for you to constantly be thinking about. And I do know that I can write faster. I need to write faster, but I also need to focus in order to write faster. And man, this this book is really giving me some trouble. And what's interesting is I know the second book so well. <laughs> like I know the next character um, so well, and I really want to write it, but I'm trying to really stay focused. Um, I'm also making notes for the historical and thinking a lot about that. I did get a little bit stuck because I need information for the historical one. So I'm just plotting forward and I'm about, I'm at 66,000 words. So, you know, it's not like I, I'm not almost done, but it's, it hasn't been an easy last week. So what I did was after I read Steal Like an Artist, and I know I've been telling you guys, you know, take a walk mostly for our physical well-being and our mental well-being. That's important. But Steal Like an Artist reminded me that sitting in front of the computer is not where you get your creativity from. And I know it's like, that is not even new. It's not new. But we have to remind ourselves of these things because when we are in that moment of, I've got to get this done. I can't believe it's already May. I wanted to get this done and then move on to the next one. And then I wanted, you know, to get the other book done. I really had a goal this year of four books. Although now that I say that, I can't remember what the fourth book was. I have three in my head. So, oh, okay. Now I remember. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You know, that, that goal I knew was a lofty goal, but it, it still comes back at me. And again, I'm, I'm saying drafts, <laughs> y'all like publishing four books right now, the way that my books are set up, probably not going to happen. But you know, I, I get overwhelmed with that idea, kind of being a little bit too hard on myself. And so I remember that it is not a waste of time to sit down and color or paint or cut up some colored paper and glue it together. I don't know, you know, <laughs> journal with different colored pens, garden, go out, go out for a walk and not just do it for the physical exercise, but to listen to the birds or to look at the flowers, maybe collect some flowers and press them. I remember doing that. There were always like stacks of books around my room and my mom would get really annoyed <laughs> about it. So I started weeding our driveway the other day. Um, my back is feeling a lot better. Still a little, you know, not 100%, but it's a lot better. Like I could weed. So I'm pulling these, you know, weeds and clumps of grass out of my gravel driveway, thinking it would be a heck of a lot easier if I just sprayed everything. <laughs> you know, of course, that only kills it. It doesn't pull it up. You know, so I'm, we have these like crazy tall stalks of something too. That shows you how much I know about gardening. I don't know anything. Um, like they're like three feet high. So I'm pulling them out and making sure that things look a little bit more, a little bit cleaner. And it, I was reminded again, how, when you focus on sort of this menial, um, physical work, you know, it's kind of minor physical work, but, but your brain's just sort of in the back thinking, okay, grab that one. Okay. Grab that one. Oh, that one popped off. Try to get the root. You know, you're 
like you know what you're doing. It doesn't cost you a lot of thought power, right? And interestingly enough, you can then just allow your brain to sort of simmer in that area of the story you're working on and what would happen. Um, what if I bring the sister in? What if I have him actually, you know, be talking to the mom more? What if I have the twin come back sooner and just, I'm not writing. I'm just thinking, just thinking, okay, what if that were to happen? Okay. I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. What if, what if this was to happen? I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. You know, where is Tread now? What is he doing? What does he want right now? What does his mom want? What does his brother, his twin brother want? Should I bring the dad back in? What would that do? You know, just asking all these questions. And instead of just sitting and feeling like I should go start writing this now, because for some reason, I feel like I should always be writing. No, I'm doing something productive. I'm weeding. I'm weeding the garden. I'm weeding the garden. And I'm, and I'm you know, listening to the thoughts in my head, listening to the characters, listening to what's going on, um, what could be happening. So I just want to remind you guys about that. We tend to sit down, I think, especially after COVID, in front of the computer and really expect a lot out of our brains. But the creativity doesn't come from staring at the computer. And it's great when you're in the moment of you know exactly what you're doing, you know exactly where this is going, and you don't have any bumps in the creativity road. So yeah, sit down and, and start typing. But when you are having some creativity road bumps, or when you're just really busy, like things just keep coming at you. Like I was trying to write yesterday and my child started choking on a lifesaver. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, you know, she's fine. We got it out. But that like really just made me jittery at that point. And then I, I, I just couldn't concentrate enough <laughs> to write. Like the weirdest things will happen in your life, right? Just allow yourself the time to go out in silence and just let your brain wander because you'll be surprised what will come. <laughs> it's just very, it's interesting how much our creativity needs to be fed by something else. So color with your kids or your nieces or nephews, paint, you know, paint some rocks. I don't know, go searching for a beautiful rock. Go find some leaves to, you know, color that, do that paper crayon thing with, whatever that is. Press some flowers. I don't know, you, you know, find that thing that as you were a kid that you would have taken the time to do. And it doesn't have to be a long time, but just allow yourself to, to sort of leave the world. Like we know a lot of what's happening in the world all the time. And yet our power to change things is still what it would have been had we not known, you know, for bigger picture, whatever, sure, you could vote, you can do maybe a few things, but your day to day is your small world. That's where you affect the most change. That's where you can do the most good, right? And so in order to do the most good for others, you need to do the most good yourself. Your creativity needs to be filled up. Your body needs to be strong. 
And so don't take away from that. Don't, you know, if you have this restless energy, if you're being overwhelmed, please take a moment. Uh, find something fun to do. Find something that you haven't done in a while. Find something that your kids like to do. I think as Americans, we can tend to think that rest comes in front of the television and that's just another screen. So I encourage you to do something analog, you know, something with your hands, something that you don't really have to think too much while doing because it, and therefore it can allow your brain to like go into <laughs> the recesses of the story or listen to some music you haven't in a while. Music too can sometimes bring thoughts and ideas for the story, but do something analog, do something with your hands and just have some fun and see where the creativity goes. Okay. So I might, maybe I'll use Instagram to post what, what some creative things that I decide to do or at Twitter. Uh, my, <laughs> a, a young man who's helping me out with the podcast has let me know that I'm telling you guys the wrong Twitter handle. It is pencils, lipstick at pencils, lipstick on Twitter. It is pencils and lipstick all spelled out on Instagram. Why I decided to do that. I can't tell you. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea why I did that. But if you want to know about, um, what's going on, what I'm not super active on Twitter, but sometimes I post, if you want to just tell me, things that you are doing to keep up with your creativity. Twitter's a great place to do that. And it's at pencils lipstick. So you could also do that on Instagram as well. So today we have a wonderful guest. Wonderful, wonderful. If you haven't read The Henna Artist, I highly recommend it. I think I say it like a hundred times in this interview because I really, I really did like it. We have a couple other authors coming in soon, trying to get some well-known names for you guys. And let me know what you guys like to read and what author you would like to have interviewed. I will ask them, you know, the worst they can say is no lady. I don't want to be on your podcast. <laughs> I have no problem asking them. So if you have somebody you want on the show, please um, let me know on Twitter at pencils lipstick or on Instagram at pencils and lipstick. Yeah. Tell me who you want on the show. And if you want to support the show, you absolutely can. You can head on over to patreon.com with your support of the show. If you are an author, I will um, read the a short blurb about your book, the title, and your name, of course, as a thank you to supporting the show. You could also buy me a coffee and all those links are in the show notes. As usual, all the links for Alka Joshi, our um, guest today, will be in the show notes as well. And you can also find my newsletters, it links in the show notes too. So without further ado, let's get in and talk to Alka Joshi about her book, The Henna Artist. Born in Jaipur, Rajasthan, India, Alka has lived in the U.S. since the age of nine. She has a BA from Stanford University and an MFA from California College of the Arts. She ran her own advertising and PR agency for 30 years. The Hannah Artist was her first novel. Currently, she is working on the third book of the trilogy and a screen adaptation of The Hannah Artist. You can find out more about Alka at alkajoshi.com, A-L-K-A, 
J-O-S-H-I.com or thehennaartist.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pencils and Lipstick. I am very excited for my guest this evening. Her name is Alka Joshi, and she is an author of the book called The Henna Artist, The Secret Keeper of Japur, and she has another one coming out. I'm very excited to have you on. Thank you for coming, Alka. I am delighted to be here, Kat. Thank you so much for having me. So I am... I don't always read everyone's book before I interview them. I will be honest, but I specifically sought you out because I read your book. In fact, I listened to the audio, which I would highly recommend. (laughs) It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It's very good. I really enjoyed it because I could hear the Indian names. You know, I didn't have to, I liked the, the accent, the way that things were said you know, the words, I really like that. So I'm a linguist. I love hearing it in sort of like the native accent. But before we get into the henna artist, you can tell I'm already very excited about it. (laughs) Would you tell people a little bit about yourself as just Alka? Yeah, um, I am 64 years old. I spend a lot of time either reading or riding, or riding my bike. I live on the uh, Monterey Peninsula, and with my husband and our two little dogs. And uh, we have uh, this wonderful atmosphere around here with lots of greenery, lots of birds, and whales, and seals, and otters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a style that's very conducive to riding. Yeah, you know, um, there's a lot of people here who are just relaxed. And, uh, so, and I think that in order to write, like I need to be relaxed. I need to be feeling as if I don't have 5,000 things to do as I am writing. I just, when I write, I am focused on writing. That is nice. I am on the complete opposite in DC. So (laughs) everyone is tense here. (laughs) (laughs) I need to go where you are. (laughs) So as, as a writer, did you always write? Is that something that you always aspired to? Or how did you get into becoming a novelist? I never once thought, oh, I'm going to be a writer someday. It wasn't uh, some childhood dream. I'm not somebody who was always writing little stories and reading my, aloud to my parents or anything like that. I really wanted to be an artist. Okay. I wanted to draw and paint. And uh, I thought, Oh, I'm going to be like Andy Warhol and do graphic design or, oh, I'm going to be like uh, Cezanne and I'm going to do impressionist painting. But uh, as it turned out, I uh, eventually made my way into advertising as a way of making a living and paying all my (laughs) bills. And it allowed me to be creative. Mm -hmm. And to come up with stories and scenarios, because that's what advertising is all about, whether you're doing it for TV or for radio, you're also creating a dialogue between characters. And I had no idea that as I was in advertising, I was actually writing tiny, tiny little stories. And instead of reading them aloud to my parents, I was making them for an audience who was going to buy a product or a service. So it was great uh, training ground to become a novelist. And you got like almost instant feedback then, whether people bought the product or didn't buy the product. You can go back. Yes. Yes. And you got a lot of comments back from your clients as well. (laughs) 
why did you do it this way? Oh, no, 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 we're not doing that again. Or yeah, that was so fantastic. We sold everything. (laughs) So was this sort of trial and error or or was storytelling really um, a part of learning sales? Or did you just realize that that is what you were learning as you were going through it? I didn't even realize I was learning it until my husband, he kept reminding me, he said, you know, you're really good at telling stories. You know how to tell stories and you are really good at writing stories. And I I would say, well, all I do is write ads. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that kind. I'm not a literary writer. You know, I'm not the kind of writer that I'm reading. You know, I'm reading Michael and Dodgy. I'm reading Ann Tyler. I'm reading... Mm -hmm. Tracy Chevalier. And uh, he said, no, I really think that you could do that. You just need to learn how to write a novel, how to write uh, instead of a one minute commercial, how to write a 400 page oh, yeah, story. Easy. <laughs> yeah, it was so easy. He said, you know, what you might want to do is start with some uh, evening classes, because okay. there's a lot of people who will teach you how to write in the evening. And uh, maybe if you like those, then see if you want to go into an MFA program. Oh, wow. And the weird thing was that that's kind of how it happened. So I did take a couple of evening classes while I was working. And by that time, in my 50s, I was already running my own advertising and marketing agency. And so what was happening was there was this big uh, recession coming along, and that was the mortgage crisis. So when that came along, I was sitting there twiddling my thumbs, and I knew I would be for about two years Mm. while the crisis, uh, you know, abated. And so I thought, okay, what can I do for two years? Oh my gosh, perfect timing to go into an MFA program oh as Brad has been telling me to do. That was so very that's smart, what I though. ended up doing. Yeah. And, you know, I looked into a couple of different programs. I knew I didn't want to travel okay. because we were well settled into San Francisco right. by that time. And it wasn't like I could just, you know, pick up roots and go anywhere. Right. And so I thought, Uh, I just want to be local. I don't want to travel really far to get to the program. And so there was a program just about a mile or two from my house. It was the uh, California College of Arts. And they had a couple of authors teaching there whose books I had really liked. And so I said, oh, I'll apply here. And of course, I got in. And, uh, you know, I say, of course, just because it was like a new-ish program. And I think they were looking for, you know, people to join. What was that process like? Did you have to submit writing or, or was, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I've taken those couple of evening classes. So I submitted a few, uh, you know, pieces that I had written. And, uh, then of course, you know, a lot of it was just sort of like, you know, what kind of a person are you and, you know, why do you want to write and why do you think it's a good time for you to write right now? Uh, so those are just questions I have to answer. So I get into this program. And then at the same time, my uh, mother wants to travel to India. So it kind of worked out perfectly. I would start a semester. I would take my mother to India, leave her there, come back and finish up the semester and go back and get her at the end. And then we would, you know, take her to doctor's appointments and so on. And then we'd start the process all over again, like the following spring or the following summer. And so I ended up taking her about four or five times okay. during my MFA program. And, you know, we would have these long breaks for winter right. or spring, you know, and so it allowed me a lot of leeway in which to take my mom. And what had happened is that my younger brother had bought a condo there in Jaipur. And of course, you know, when you have a place to stay, you can stay as long as yeah. you want. <laughs> 
So that's what we were doing. You know, there was a cook there. Uh, he had housekeepers uh, and, you know, he didn't live there himself. He lived in L.A., but, you know, he was like, I know mom and dad are getting older and nostalgic and I okay. want to provide them a place where they can go and hang out with friends oh, and family. Nice. And most of our extended family is in Jabworth. So that worked out. Well. Nice. Is, is Were you able to travel there quite often as a child or was this more as an adult that you went back? No, it was as an okay. adult in my fifties uh, while I was going so through the was MFA the first program. Time that you had gone back to Jaipur? No, uh, let's see. I had been back uh, when I was sixteen. So we came to the United States when I was okay. nine, and then when I was sixteen, my parents decided that they wanted to do a big European tour and then end up in India and then come back. And they asked my brothers and me, you know, would we like to go? My brother said, no, don't want to go. But I she said, said, yeah, no. sure, I want to go to Europe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, so I ended up going to okay. Europe with them. And that was my first time in Europe. And it was really yeah. fun. And uh, then we ended up in uh, India and saw a lot of relatives okay. and uh, then came back home. But I had not been back since that trip when I was 16. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it flying is easier now, but that's a long trip. Even from California, that's a really long trip. But, yeah, it sure is. So you went back five times between, like in the in the course of two two and a half years. Oh yeah. my goodness, you must be jet lagged still. <laughs> <laughs> so is your family's in Jaipur? Um, is that where you grew up until you were nine? We grew up in so many okay. different places. Uh, to, until I was nine, we had lived in Jaipur, Jodhpur. Bikaner, Banswara. Now, those are four different cities in Rajasthan. Okay. And then one year we were up north in the state of Punjab uh, in Chandigarh. Okay. And the reason that we've moved around so much every couple of years is because my father was a uh, civil engineer. Uh -huh. and he was helping rebuild India. So he was always on a project for building a road, building a dam, building, uh, you know, a foundation of a building. Right. And uh, so dad was often working with Maharajas who would be involved in investing in the infrastructure. So they wanted to be involved in some of the design work and everything. And so I, um, I just sort of grew up around okay. that environment. So much of the environment that I write yeah. about in the henna artist is what I grew up. Around. Okay. So when you went into the MFA, did you have an idea of the henna artist or did she really come around? while you were traveling? I had an idea okay. about, I wanted to write about okay. India. I wanted to write, I had started getting this idea about this woman who was a henna artist. And I realized that the reason for that is because I was hanging out with my mom a lot more as I grew mm -hmm. older. And uh, she was actually uh, living with us, my my husband and me at the time. And when I started writing, and I was uh, hanging out a lot with her and just asking her about her life, her early life, her early motherhood, her early wife, uh, you know, wifehood, yeah. her early marriage. And, you know, she was just sharing so much with me about, you know, what she felt as a young girl, okay. what her aspirations and hopes were before my grandfather said, no, 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 you're about to get married. Uh, you know, we found this engineer for you. Oh. And. So any kind of dreams that she might have had, you know, we're going to go by the wayside. And then within four years of her marriage, she has three small kids. 
and she's constantly taking care of them and taking care of my dad. And then on top of that, as I said, my father's job was always moving right. from place to place. So mom was always moving us from place to place. We'd no sooner get settled in one place than we would be moving again. You know, and, and every place that we moved to, my mom had to hire new servants. Oh, you know, gosh. there were there were cooks, there were cleaners, there were gardeners, there were nannies. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in a very privileged uh, sort of environment. No, and, that's hard. Uh, that's, that's hard. Yeah. It's lonely for her. Yeah, it was very lonely for my yeah. mom. That is for sure. Because I know that so many times, you know, I think she was just depressed. Yeah. Uh, she had nobody to talk to. Uh, you know, wherever we happened to come uh, into the United States, dad came here for his doctorate. So he was busy all day long at the university. He was doing research. He was doing his thesis. And, you know, my mother was just taking care of us right. and, you know, sitting at home. And it was very difficult for her to find the spices that she oh, needed yes. to cook with. Very difficult for her to find saris and blouses. You know, this is 1967 in Iowa. And, and in there's Iowa, nothing. I was... I yeah. was thinking California. I mean, it'd be hard in California, Iowa. That's that's corn country. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> yeah. I grew up around there. That that must have been very different for her. Yes, and she told me while we, you know, were talking, um, you know, in one of those evenings that we were talking about her life, she told me that she'd never wanted to come to the oh. United States. She loved yeah. India. You know, she wanted to stay in India. Uh, she was scared of being in a whole different yeah. place where she didn't know the fruits and the vegetables and and where her children would be going to school. And then pretty soon after we came here, you know, my father had always put us in an English speaking school in India. So we knew how to speak English. But pretty soon, once we got here, we were speaking English all day long, mm -hmm. whereas in India, we had spoken Hindi at home once we got home. Now, all of a sudden, we are constantly speaking in English, and my mother uh, can't always understand what we're saying because we have changed from the British English to American right. English. It's a very different thing for uh, somebody to try to understand. Yep. You know, even now, when I watch British shows on television, I have to turn the subtitles right. on because I don't always understand yeah, what they're like saying. The intonation is will really throw your mind off, honestly. It's like, you feel like you should understand and yet you can't. And I mean, she's already moving you, trying to probably make friends, probably being confused that people don't understand her with their accent. I can't imagine middle America really being exposed <laughs> to many different accents other than, right. you know, that's hard. Oh my gosh. I, I remember, you know, like going shopping with her and people would just stop and stare because they had never seen a woman in a, in a sari before. Yeah. And so they would just stop and stare. And, um, you know, sometimes they would say, do you speak English? And I would answer for my mom. You know, I would say, uh, yes, we speak English. And they go, how do you speak such good English? Did you have to learn English to come here? And I'm like, no, I went to school. <laughs> we had English all day long in school. And then they would say, well, what are you guys? And I would say, uh, we're Indian. And then they would say, what tribe? <laughs> and I didn't know what they were talking about. I said, what do you mean, what tribe? Um, you know, and then they would say, where did you get your tan? Because everybody in uh, America was obsessed with having a tan. And I would say, tan, what's a tan? You know, I had no idea. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's even hard today, but I can't imagine our our academic system back then the geography and the history of other countries. It just wasn't, it's not really there, no. you know, you know, 
the other thing, Kat, that wasn't there was the was the history of a place. Yes. And so when I opened up my textbooks uh, in America, they were all uh, pictures. When we got to the India section, it was all pictures of starving people in India. Now, India is a complex country. Right. It's not just one thing or another. Right. You know, there are there is a wealthy class, there is a middle mm-hmm. class, and then there's a poor class. And for some reason, in the United States, all that anybody ever knew about and saw pictures of were starving people. Or they saw pictures of cows walking through the streets because, you know, and, and they called them sacred cows. Uh, the reason that Indians did not kill cows and eat beef is because they needed the cows for agriculture. They didn't have... Uh, the industrial right. uh, tools and the tractors that uh, America did. So they use cows to till the right. land. Who's who's going to kill? You know the goose that lays the right, golden right, eggs. Right. So um, so there there were so many things that people uh, assumed about India yes. that I knew were wrong, but I couldn't correct them because I was just a yeah. kid. I had no language uh, to to try to explain my country, yes. and I couldn't really understand the questions that they were asking me. Uh, you know, like, why does your mother wear that dot on her forehead? I had grown up seeing women with uh, that tilak on their forehead. That's what it's called, or a bindi. Sometimes it's called a bindi, but I didn't understand. Why? I mean, I was—I right. just, just knew that my mother wore one, and all these other women wore them, and so I didn't know how to explain. And so, what happened is that because of this lack of knowledge in the school system mm-hmm. about India, I became very embarrassed oh, about no. where I was from. I became really ashamed of being from what everyone else thought was a poor, illiterate, dirty, hot country. Ugh. And that wasn't the India that I remembered as a kid, because, you know, I grew up in in, in a very wonderful right. place. I went to a private school. I had a little blue uniform. Our nanny read us stories every night. But I have no, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't know how to talk about right. it. So I got very embarrassed. And uh, for years, I think this is why my brothers and I did not want to go back to India. We just felt that we must have come from some, you know, hellhole. Right. Uh, Then you fast forward to a time when I'm actually studying India to write about it. And then I'm going to India and I'm realizing, oh, my gosh, this is a very different country from what the Americans think of it or from what the Western world thinks of it. This is a country that is rich in tradition, rich in color, rich in all kinds of uh, history and science and math that they have contributed to the world. And this is a place where so much of what the world enjoys today comes from, you know, the fragrances that we wear. So many of the raw ingredients come from India. Uh, So many of the spices used today, they come from India. Christopher Columbus was or looking India. for India when he <laughs> happened on America. Yes. And that is why the native people here were called Indians. Everybody seems to have forgotten yes. that. Yes. <laughs> I mean, and, and it's it's interesting how we assume things when we just don't know. And I know one of the first men I met from Africa would be like, why do you all think we live in huts? <laughs> like We have <laughs> cities. And I thought about it and I was like, well, one I guess I was never taught any, like literally nothing about, I don't think I was ever taught anything about India or Africa or 
maybe a little bit bad about China, you know, but so <laughs> I think that you just see images on TV and maybe in the eighties and seventies, it was like the world hunger and that's probably it. And that's all that was happening. And what's interesting <laughs> is, you know, America has poverty. It has dirty yes. cities. It has privileged yes. and underprivileged, you know, we just don't. We just don't want to yeah. see it. It's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I remember one time uh, somebody asked my mother, what did you do before dry cleaning? How did you get your saris clean? And my mother just stared at her and she said, I don't know. What did your mother do before dry cleaning? <laughs> it's like, I don't, like, I don't know. <laughs> Watch them. <laughs> like, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh my goodness. The, the funny questions that we have. Um, so you you did choose 1950, which is more your mother's sort of era. Um, that would be probably yeah. when she was getting married, right? Okay. Yes, exactly. 1955 is the year the henna artist uh, starts, uh, and that is the year that my mother and father okay. were married. So what, what, yeah. what was and going on in India at the time, just for all of us Westerners who probably don't know a whole lot, um, just okay. politically and between men and women and in classes? Yeah. So in 1947, the pressure for the British to leave India was so great because India had had enough. Mm -hmm. They had had over 200 years of British control over India and they wanted them out. And there were lots of riots mm -hmm. and lots of, um, you know, uh, pleas from the people of India to just, you know, British go home. <laughs> and so finally, the British left in 1947. Okay. India got its independence on August 15th. And ever since then, India had to start rebuilding okay. itself because the British had done three drastic things while they were there. They had raped India of a lot of her raw materials yeah. uh, because they had usurped them for themselves and sold them around the world as their own property. Right. Uh, number two, they had destroyed the textile industry in India because they had Victorian textile mills due to industrialization that they wanted ah. to sell, uh, you know, they wanted their cloth and their mass manufactured clothing to be sold around the world. Uh, and so they didn't want India's beautiful textiles, their cotton and their silks to compete right. with them. So they systematically demolished all the textile uh, factories in India. <sighs> and in one case, they even broke the thumbs of the weavers oh, so they could geez. never weave again. Because keep in mind, one of the reasons that India's textiles were so beautiful and so fine is because they were hand woven, okay. unlike what was happening in the West with industrialization. They were building in factories. Yeah, they were killing their own people with those horrible factories. God. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of child labor. Yeah, remember yeah. that? I mean, I think that Dickens writes mm -hmm. a lot about what industrialization was doing to England at that time. So uh, so anyway, they destroyed the textile industry. And the third thing that they did was demoralize the mm. people. Uh, so under British rule, tens of millions of Indians were killed, were beaten, were maimed, were imprisoned just because they wanted to have a voice of right. their own. And the British knew, of course, that in order to rule a people, in order to control a people, you need to make sure they don't right. have a voice. So, um, you know, the textile industry wasn't the only industry they destroyed. They also destroyed the shipbuilding industry in India, which was huge because of the teak 
and the rosewood that grows oh, wow. uh, in southern okay. India, which are really hard woods. And when you make ships out of them, they last forever. Yeah. So uh, they destroyed that industry. And then they destroyed India's steelmaking industry. Uh, because remember, all the warriors carried these very sharp swords. Where did those come from? India was making that. They made the steel. They made those kinds of weapons. So, uh, yeah, so, so much of that had happened while the British were there, that in the 1950s, post-independence, it was all about rebuilding. Indians deciding for Mm -hmm. themselves how they were going to educate their people, which industries they should bring back, which were the products that were going to influence the world in the future that they needed to become a part of. And also, you know, how were they going to rebuild the roads and the uh, trains that the British had only built to get raw materials from factories over to the port, not so that people within India could travel uh, to each other. So they had to develop all that infrastructure. And my father, I'm very proud to say, was part of that uh, movement to get everything going again in India. So that's what happened. Was it a prosperous time at that point? Like I I would assume there's lots of jobs. People are pretty excited. They're Yes, yes. A lot of exuberance. And it was sort of like what had happened before the British came to India in the 1700s. India was a very prosperous Mm -hmm. country. That's why the British wanted to come to India. And that's why they considered it their jewel in the crown, because India had all these resources and minerals and jewels and everything. And so I think it it felt similar to Indians as it must have before right. the British came. We're a prosperous country. We are going to rebuild ourselves. And, you know, we, we're going to get that stuff back, that mojo yeah. back that we used to have. Yeah. And at that time, also, the um, IITs were started. Those are the India Institutes of Technology. So that today, the entire world benefits (laughs) from having hardware and software engineers who are Indians and who are creating all this technology around the world that we use everywhere today. You and I use our iPhones. Those are Indians that worked on that. You and I are Zooming today. Those are Indians yes. that worked on that. Yes. So it's very important to remember where a lot of that brain power is coming right. from. And it started in the 1960s when those IITs were founded oh, wow. in India. That's amazing. See that in all this is going on while Americans think that <laughs> there's yes. like cows running That's around. <laughs> Yes, yes. And that's why I think uh, my family was so astounded at the kind of ideas right. that people had about India when we got here, because in India, there was all this flurry of, you know, building and excitement yeah. and, you know, all these things going up. And we come here and everybody's like, oh, you guys, you're so you sad. <laughs> yeah, that's what, oh my goodness. <laughs> See, and I, I think I think um, in the 1960s, a lot of uh, brain power went from India to the West because uh, the West had opened up their visa program. They needed the brain power. Well, they saw what you guys were doing and they were like, come over here and work, please, because our people aren't going to do it. America needed engineers. They needed doctors. They needed the brain power. And so um, there was a migration of Indians in the 1960s. Once again, when the high tech movement came in the 1980s and 90s, there was another big uh, immigration from India. Uh, So that's kind of, you know, what has whenever the United States government allows uh, Indians to come into the United States, it's usually because they need them for industry. Yes. 
Because we didn't have the foresight to start the, you know, something like an IIT and getting people. We're, we're very late to the game, which is interesting because we don't think we are. <laughs> like as a people, yeah. we're very proud of ourselves until you leave the country and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> but, you know, Kat, here is something that people don't know. Also, one of the IITs is modeled after MIT. Oh. And it was MIT professors who came to India to teach them how to teach everybody this kind of engineering. So, you know, America doesn't even know that they actually lent that kind of uh, training to uh, to India that is then coming back That's to That's interesting. <laughs> they probably should have made one or two in Iowa and, you know, maybe Nevada. <laughs> 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 They like to forget about the middle of the country, but that's, yeah. so your mom's growing up. So she must've been teenager when the independence came in. Okay. And so, so, but she, she, was it like things were changing, but I mean, was she happy to get married to, because I, I I have Chinese friends who still today are, are, at least they say they're very happy to do the, the, the traditional, their parents find them a mate. Is that something that she was happy to do or she, she never even questioned it? It was just what the tradition was. And I asked my mother that, and um, she said, honey, we didn't have choices. So when my father said, you have to come home from college now, you will not be going back to college. You will be getting married and you will be having children. She said, I didn't question okay. it. It wasn't something I got to question. Okay. So I just, I came back home and I saw your father from across the room. I was introduced to him. And then the first time we talked, it was on our wedding night as we were walking seven times around the, around the oh, wedding fire. Wow. And yeah, and that was it. Okay. And so, um, and then immediately, you know, she starts having children without really understanding where they're yeah, coming so it's from. Yeah, so the 1950s, there's no way to really, I mean, I guess it, she wouldn't even question not having kids right away because that's what you do. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, you know, um, I asked her, I said, you know, were you happy to have children? And she said, you know, I think that the proudest thing I've ever done in my life is to have the three of you guys. And I think that, um, you know, one of the things I'm grateful to your father for is that he gave me three beautiful children and very smart children. So um, I think that she was always very proud of that fact. But for me, I think she always said, honey, the decision is up to you. However many children you want, that's up to you. Whenever you wow. want to get married, that's up to you. I am not going to force you to really? do that. How did when she I come was, to that? I mean, not every woman, just because you change countries, no. changes. You. She was very okay. unusual. She was very yeah. unusual. Um, and I think that what might have happened, first of all, I think that even though she did everything outwardly that was expected of her and that she was trained okay. to do, I think inwardly, she always knew that there was a bigger life uh, that she could have if there hadn't been such a strong patriarchy okay. in India. And I think that, uh, you know, she was very much into the movies. Mm-hmm. She loved the movies. She loved to go to the movies because that's fantasy, mm-hmm. right? All the women in the movies get to do all kinds of things that they don't normally get to do in real life. Uh, she loved to read. And so she would read. And, you know, these stories are all like, you know, if you read any of Tagore's stories from all those years ago, they're all about young women who are unhappy in their patriarchal structure. And so they go off right. and do amazing things okay. in their lives. 
So I think that my mother was very much influenced by these outside forces. And then we come to America in 1969. We're all, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old, but my mom is 30. And she is looking around. She is thinking, there is a sexual revolution going on in the United States. There is all of the rioting going on around stopping the Vietnam War. People have long hair. Hippies are all over the place. Uh, And so there are people challenging the status quo everywhere around her. Anytime she turns on the television, there are TV shows which have half, you know, scantily clad women doing whatever they want to do in their lives. You know, she's watching Peyton Place where women are having affairs with their neighbors, husbands and all of this. I think my mother's eyes would have were exploding. Yeah. You know, they were like, oh my God, what is going on here? And I think that somewhere in the back of her brain, she must have thought, I can raise my daughter so differently here. My kids can have so much more freedom here than they could back in India. And I'm going to make sure that they That's get it. That's really amazing. And I think in some sort of way, that was her rebellion. Okay. We were her rebellion. We were her way of saying, there's another way to be in this world. And I want to make sure my kids get that way. My father, had he had his way, would have raised us far more traditionally, would have wanted me to marry somebody who was Indian. None of us married Indians because we were raised all around the white society. We ended up marrying white Americans. So you guys, you married for love that was completely different from your mother meeting your dad. The day of your, I mean, that's really hard for me to imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that because she allowed us such a free life, uh, I wanted, you know, I often would get kind of sad and I would think, gosh, you know, my mother didn't get to have the life that she has given me. I would love to give her that life, but I I can't, can't I can't turn back time. I can't take her back to the 1950s and not allow her to get married, but let her have the education, let her have the four years in college, have a degree, go off and have a career. She didn't get to do any of that. But you know what? Now that I'm learning to write, why don't I create a character who gets to do all those things? And that's where Lakshmi was. Yes. And and Lakshmi, she's she's clearly she's not exactly like your mom because she's not um, of a privileged class. She's pretty poor. Her husband is not nice. <laughs> you know? So yeah. you, did, you did change quite a, a little bit, but is, is Lakshmi yeah. from the area that your mom was from? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. So Lakshmi's from, um, well, Lakshmi is actually from a state next to Rajasthan called Uttar Pradesh. And my mother went to school in Uttar okay. Pradesh, but she's also from Rajasthan. And Rajasthan is where Jaipur is. So the stories take place in both, both those areas. areas. And then you ha- and then we used to, as a family, vacation up in Shimla at the foothills of the Himalay Mountains. And that's why Shimla also uh, plays a role in, uh, in all I love that, that you've been there. I think, I mean, it, it, it helps, it probably helps why I can see it. I don't know if it looks like I, it does in my head, but I can, I can imagine what, well, at least I have an image in my head of all the places that she is. Yeah. You know, you know, Kat, I have to be in a place in order to describe it. I cannot just conjure it in my imagination. Like I could never write fantasy books where people are imagining all of these uh, uh, scenarios that haven't yeah. happened yet. 
But because I've been to all of the places I write about, I can write right. about them. Uh, so for, you know, book number three that I just wrote, which takes place uh, partly in Paris, mm. I went to Paris last fall and I found an apartment that I, my protagonist would live in. Right. I wanted to find exactly the apartment that I thought they might live in. I found it and I stayed there for three weeks as I was uh, writing the scenes that would go into oh, that book. So I have to be in the place. I have to either have visited the place, been in that place, uh, you know, I'm going to that place in order okay. to write about it. So let's talk a little bit about the henna artist. I know you have, it's a trilogy now. So yeah. is the third book, does it follow Lakshmi or does it follow her sister? Can I ask? <laughs> well, you know, all, all of these books have um, bits and pieces of Lakshmi and Malik and Radha. So okay, those are so the three Malik's main characters. <laughs> yeah. And, and as you know, um, you know, Malik is a Lakshmi's helper and he, you know, he carries her supplies mm -hmm. for her. He negotiates on behalf of her with vendors uh, and he really protects yeah. her. And in a way, she protects him. They have a very symbiotic relationship. She makes sure that he eats yeah. uh, because he's liable to just run around and have snacks all day long. So she wants him to have, you know, like a good uh, existence. But we don't know very much about him in the henna artist, where he right. came from, who takes care of him when Lakshmi is not around. Well, all of that I wrote, but those pages got cut out of the oh, original okay. manuscripts. 140 pages were sitting on the floor by the time I was oh, done wow. with the henna artist over the 10 years that it took to get it published. So uh, Malik then started asking me to write his yeah. story. I know that, you know, that may seem weird, but I think as authors, we all understand those characters. When we have lived with them for yes. so long, they start talking to us. So he said, write my story. You know what my background is. So in The Secret Keeper of Jabber, I get to write a lot of Malik's oh, story, where he came from, who took care of him in the Pink City, uh, you know, where he goes as he gets older. And he, um, in the henna artist, in the end of the henna artist, we know that he goes to this posh boarding school in yeah. Shimla. And so once he graduates from that, boarding school what happens to him does he get a job does he have a love interest yeah. so we find out about all of that in the secret keeper of Jaipur and in book number three we find out about Radha's story all that stuff that got cut out of the henna artist how did she meet Ravi how did she start a relationship with him how did she get yeah. pregnant you know why did she you know why was she so insistent about keeping that baby those are all things that we find out in book number three okay. as we find out about Radha who is uh, living that story in 1974. She is, uh, that's the disco yeah. era. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was in Paris in 1974 okay. uh, when I was in school in, uh, no, I think 1974, that was when I was 16. And um, my parent, I was going around with my parents to Europe. And I remember the tiny little disco, uh, you know, uh, yeah. floors, the dance floors were I mean, it was like just this little narrow place that you were dancing. So Radha is living in Paris. She's married to a Parisian. She has two little girls and she is learning how to be a master perfumer, which mm -hmm. takes about 10 years. So she is going to be designing her own scents, signature scents. Uh, but she uh, is going to be surprised when the baby that she had in the henna artist, who is now 17, shows up at her door. Ooh, in Paris. Oh, my goodness. I can't wait for this. All <laughs> right. The, so did you have this whole trilogy figured out before you started writing the henna artist? 
Really? No, not, not at, at all. all. Not at all. I know, you know, you would think that authors have these trilogies worked out yes. in their heads. I don't know if J.K. Rowling worked out all of her uh, sequels in her head way before it was you know, way, way before it was done. But for me, it was all organic. Okay. It was just because the characters kept living in my imagination and kept bugging me to write their stories. So I knew I knew little bits and pieces of their stories, but then I got to really flush it out in the books that really center on them. I think, I think part of also what happens is that we fall in love mm-hmm. with our characters. And one of the things I loved in the writing process is that I learned so much about myself, what I tolerate in people, what I think about different kinds of people. This all comes out in Mm -hmm. my writing. It all comes out through my characters. And uh, one of the things that I think I, I realize also is that I have to have for every single character, humanity. I have to have empathy for them. I cannot hate any of my characters. I have to understand how they became who they are. And even if I don't agree with some of the things they do, I have to be able to understand why they do what they do. So, you know, that was a huge learning experience for me because it helps to make every character three-dimensional. Much, much, uh, you know, kind of like how I was saying people need to think about countries like India. They are far more complex than you can imagine. And I think people are far more complex. Nobody is all evil or all right. good. We all have a little bit of yes. everything. Yes. <laughs> well, one thing I really like, I mean, you can see what you just said, how you like to have humanity in your characters and you like them to be three-dimensional. You can see that in the henna artist. I mean, I, I listened to it again. I, I think it's amazing. People should listen to the audible, <laughs> but the, you can see it in every character. You can tell that you understand each character, which I think is not always the case these days. Sometimes it's more about getting more books out than really understanding the character. But you're also very fair about how history, circumstances, good or bad, create and make and kind of push us towards the decisions we make good or bad, you know, like we're very influenced by so many different things. And without laying all of that out, you really imply it with everyone. Like, um, what is the the name of the main character, the man who, who lends, um, money? You mean Samir? Samir? So, I mean, you can really tell, I mean, he's a very likable character and yet he makes some <laughs> poor decisions or, you know, decisions you wouldn't really want to agree with, but without going into all the history of all the different classes and the complexities of India, you can tell that he's, he is what he is by how and when he grew up, you know? Oh, brilliantly put, brilliantly put. That is exactly what I would hope every reader gets from this. They, uh, they I want them to understand the complexity of the yes. classes and the caste without my having to spell it out. And I think the only way you can do that is through the character's actions and their words. And then you just get it. You go, oh, okay. I understand now why that person treats that person that way. Right, yes. So how did you know how to make these complex characters without like 
holding the reader's hand, which is really the most annoying thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, you write them in such a way that you can tell as a reader that you know them. So is, is that something that maybe came through advertising where you have to, you know, get something across to people very quickly or, or a combination of that in your MFA or do you just like people watching? You know, <laughs> I think it's because um, you probably wouldn't believe this now if you met me, but I was very shy as a child. I could not talk mm. to people. My parents were always saying, go talk to your auntie, go say hello to that girl, go, go say hello to that boy. And I wouldn't do it. I would hide behind my mother's skirts. And uh, I think I was just, you know, some people are just born mm -hmm. shy. And so what I did instead was just watch people because I wasn't talking. I had all this space and time to watch people. I would watch people's expressions and I would think, hey, they're saying something that is not showing through on their face. Uh, or, and I would, I would listen to what they weren't oh. saying in their words. But I could tell that, you know, by their gesture or the way they were moving their hands, that what they were saying was so different from what they were right. feeling. And I really started to observe. And I, I don't think I knew I was consciously doing that. I remember at one time in college, uh, somebody said to me, will you stop watching people <laughs> for a change and just participate? I was okay. so used to doing it. It was it just was a natural part of me. And then I think the second thing is that, you know, I told you I was an mm -hmm. artist. And when you're an artist, you learn how to observe very carefully every little detail. Like if you are drawing, let's say this uh, tin tiffin, you know, I know that the shadows uh, go across like this right. in lines, right? I know that I have to make this a rounded representation on a two-dimensional right. surface. How am I going to do that? I'm going to do that with shadow. I'm going to observe how this line here is uh, crooked. You know, it's it doesn't go flat all the way across and that's how I will draw it. So there are ways in which you're an artist, you learn to observe so much in mm. detail. And so this is why I observe people's jewelry. I observe the clothing. I, you know, I look at every which way that, you know, somebody does their hair, you know, is it just, is it just a little gray or is it all right. gray? You know, this, these are just uh, things that come very naturally to me. And I think those really helped me write uh, in a way that is very uh, sort of organic and that lets people know what's happening behind the scenes without my having yes. to hold their hand. Well, you do it very well. And I'm, I don't know how I found the henna artist, but I, I very much enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, when all these emails I get about uh, different books, I know it was part of Reese Witherspoon's, but I'm not part of that. But anyway, I'm glad that I found it. You know, Kat, I have at this point, okay, so I've done about 737 book clubs oh, wow. online. Wow. On Zoom. Yeah. And I love book clubs because they're so yes. engaged. You know, they, they are so passionate about the books that they read and they're passionate about discussing them. And why did the character do this? And I wasn't happy <laughs> about this. And I like all of that emotion coming through because now I know I've right. done my job right. as a writer. And then I have uh, heard from people all around the world, like thousands of people around the world have written to me, either emailed me or written me a little note or something, something through my publisher. And what they're saying is, 
I can resonate with these characters in the henna artist, even though I've never been to India. I don't know anything about your culture, but I love it. And then I hear from all the people in India, uh, in Pakistan, in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka, who are reading the henna artist and the secret keeper of Jaipur. And they are telling me, oh my God, how did you capture us so perfectly? This is brilliant. They're like, I have lived in Jaipur or I have uh, been in Jaipur or I live in Jaipur today or I have family in Jaipur. And uh, and I, of course, I have lived in India and I think that you have captured India in a way that I have not seen yet. Uh, You have captured us in our complexity rather than just talking about us as a slum, rather than just talking about us as, uh, you know, people who are fighting the British. You know, you you are just capturing us in all of our different modes. And thank you so much. I had not expected that. Yeah, but it is it is such a treat to hear also from South Asians who are telling me that they love. Yes, I'm sure that is like maybe especially because I don't know, were you ever um, a little weary of like you grew up mostly in in America? How will it be received? And you're kind of in the middle. You bet. (laughs) You bet. I was really concerned that, you know, people from South Asia would uh, read my books and go, that's not like us at all. So that, I think that's why I went overboard with the research and overboard with really uh, trying to explain Mm -hmm. how people were. And, you know, some of these characters, they remind me of my family back in Jaipur. And uh, some of them remind me of, you know, their amalgamations of different people have known. Uh, and so, you know, it feels, it feels very natural. Yeah. Uh, and so I had hoped that readers would also feel that I wasn't forcing uh, personalities that, that they could recognize these personalities. And they all tell me, yeah, you know what? I know people like this. <laughs> yes. yes. Because that's the funny thing. People are the same, no matter, no matter really what culture humans make sort of the same good decisions, bad decisions, you know, some are helpful some are not helpful. yeah I, I hope that that yeah. would um encourage anyone who also crosses cultures like you do to to not be afraid to incorporate their background culture oh yeah as a matter of fact Kat, I encourage everybody who has something different in their background whether it's a place they grew up maybe they grew up in an orphanage as opposed to a nuclear family uh maybe they grew up uh, you know, around a lot of dogs, which most of us, you know, may not have grown up, maybe, maybe one dog or two, but maybe they grew up around a, a passel of dogs. Whatever it is that's unique to them is what they should mm. write about because they know that stuff. So when people say write about what you know, that's what mm. they're saying. If you write about something you are so intimately connected to, your writing is going to come through so often right. that people are going to say, oh, wow. I, I am in your world. I am now completely in your world. You have immersed me right. in that world. And so I encourage people to bring out their uniqueness, right. whatever that is that's special about them, that's different about them. That is your, uh, what is it called? The, your yes, secret sauce. that's true. That's your and I think sauce. you hit it with the authenticity. It really shows when you're writing it because A, I think you, you're passionate about it. You know about it. You're authentic about it. So that's a very, very good point. So you have, the henna artist, which again, everyone should listen to it as well because it's amazing. <laughs> the secret keeper of Jaipur. Is that how you say it? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and what is the third one called? It's coming out in, next year? Yes. The Perfumist of Paris will be out in March of 2023. Ooh, but you know, uh, let me say something about the okay. audio version. 
I get to select the narrators. And uh, yes, and when I, you know, I was listening on Audible to all these different books that are uh, by South Asians, and I was listening to them and trying to find my narrator. And I found her as soon as I heard her voice, I thought, oh, my God, that's her. That's Lakshmi. That's Lakshmi right there. And then I went back to Harper Audio and I said, could you please have her read the passage that you're having all of your other auditions uh, read? And they did. And she was brilliant. And I, I could not believe, you know, we spent three hours, she and I, going through all of the vocabulary, all the glossary, because she's from a different okay. part of India and she pronounces things differently oh, and yeah. she wanted to know how okay. I would pronounce them. Yeah. So even in India, you know, Hindi is not pronounced the same way or spelled the same way from north to south, east to west, just like right. here in America, potato, yes. potato, you know, <laughs> we that don't understand the it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly, exactly. And, you know, there are all these expressions right. that maybe the North knows the South doesn't okay. know that kind of thing. So, um, so she and I spent about three hours on the phone, just going over all of that. And she wanted to know what the characters were that I imagined in my head, oh, what fine. were their feelings. Uh, and so then, my gosh, when I listened to her narration of the henna artist, I was like, Oh, she couldn't be more brilliant. And then she took the henna artist all the way to uh, the bestseller status on the New York Times oh, audiobooks list. She deserves it. You both yeah. deserve it. I mean, it, it is really fabulous. Does she um, narrate yeah. The Secret Keeper of Jaipur or did you choose a male for that one? So in The Secret Keeper of Jaipur, I decided to branch out a little bit as an author and give three points of okay. view, three very distinct points of view. Some of the chapters are from Malik's first person. Some of them are from Lakshmi's first person. And some of them are from Nimmi, who ended up being a very strong voice in here. Nimmi is the tribal woman whom Malik is in love with. And so I have three different voices for uh, this one, three narrators. And then the next one is going to be all from Radha's point of view, first person. So I'm going to have to choose a narrator to do Radha's. Okay. Uh, So you have, you're very busy. So you have like the Hunted Artist is becoming a series a television series, right? It's very exciting. Can't wait for that. Um, and you have another book coming out. Do you have any more writing that you're working on or thinking about? You don't have to tell us everything, but are you planning on yeah. coming out with more? Yes. 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 Uh, I have a, a book that I had put aside in order to complete okay. the second uh, sequel. And so um, I might go back to that. But I also have this idea brewing in my head about a very contemporary American uh, sort of TV show. And I'd like to learn how to write the screenplay for that. And then I think for book number three, The Perfumist of Paris, I have seen it so visually in my head that I think it could make a great movie. So I'm thinking, you know, I need to learn how to write a screenplay so that I can start writing more screenplays. I would love to do something Look like that. Look at you. You're very ambitious. I love this. I like, cannot wait for this. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. I can't gush enough about The Henna Artist. If people haven't read it, I think that they should absolutely, absolutely read it. I think it's a wonderful introduction if you know nothing about India to, to learn a little bit more. And I, I think it's a beautiful book. And thank you so much, Alka. Oh, thank you so much, Kat. It was lovely being here. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? 
It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.